Hello, everyone. This is Mark C. Crowley, and you're listening to the Lead from the Heart podcast. When you think about the work you do, you know deep down that it represents far more to you than just a meal ticket. It's a source of identity and meaning and purpose. And if you're happy doing it, personal flourishing. But work for many of us and for many of the people we manage is about to undergo a massive and unprecedented transformation. Technology and artificial intelligence are poised to change or even eliminate many of the jobs we do today. And it's not entirely clear what work will emerge to replace them. In the meantime, a lot of people aren't really thriving in their jobs today. 30 to 40% of recent college graduates have employment that doesn't require the degree they just earned. And a new survey shows that 63% of American workers feel workplace stress is having a significant impact on their mental and behavioral health. And most of the jobs created during the recent recovery aren't really good jobs, but low paying ones that provide little autonomy, respect, or stability. So the goal of today's show is to make some sense of all of these trends. And I'm pleased to have critically acclaimed journalist Ellen Rupel Shell join us. Ellen's new book is called The Job, Work and Its Future in a Time of Radical Change. And it's one of the most comprehensively researched books I've read in a very long time. And it's already a bestseller. And it just came out last week. Ellen traveled all over America and to Finland to do a deep dive into what makes work compelling, what leaders and organizations can do to ensure jobs remain engaging, and what mindset we'll all need to adopt in order to thrive during the technological revolution that's coming our way. And so for the next hour, I plan to probe into as much of what she discovered during her journey so that you can consider your next moves in preparation for the new year and the new years ahead. Ellen Rupel-Shell is an associate professor and co-director of the Knight Center for Science and Medical Journalism at Boston University. She's also a correspondent for the Atlantic Monthly and has written for the New York Times Magazine, Time Magazine, Discover, National Geographic, The Washington Post, and many other magazines and journals. And her last book called The Hungry Gene has been published in six languages. And so I would like to extend a very warm welcome to you, Ellen. Welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much for having me. Well, I am thrilled that you're here and just spent the entire weekend reading your book. And I have to say that I'm especially impressed by really an incredible amount of research that you did for this book and then how well it's written. I think that owes to your significant journalism background. And I'm also really honored to be discussing this with you just a few days after it came out. So as you imply in your book subtitled, the future of work is really about to bring some radical change. And I think as I was reading the book that I, I think I was sort of overwhelmed by how much change you're projecting. So I'd like to ask you to start things off by telling us what inspired you to write this book and perhaps give us a big picture of what you learned that will impact everyone listening in. Uh, well, what inspired me to write this book, what's interesting is you're absolutely right. The job kind of tackles a very, it, it, I think the Wall Street Journal called it sweeping. And I think that's, that's correct. And so no journalist in their right mind would tackle a topic this large and this contentious. So I, w I can't really say I was entirely in my right mind when I took it on. I took it on because I felt I had almost no choice. I looked around and found this tremendous disconnect between what we were being told about work, the official rhetoric about work, and what was actually happening on the ground. 
And therefore, I sort of felt I had to put my narrative shoulder to the wheel and take a deep look, a deep dive into questions of work, its centrality in our lives, and its meaning in this time when, when work seems to be a topic that everyone talks about, everyone worries about, but no one seems to do much about. And it's also a topic about which everyone has a very strong opinion. And then to be somewhat facetious, you know, everyone seems to have their own facts too. So this is in some ways, even though it was a broad and sweeping topic and therefore difficult to get my arms around. So I spent eight years on this project and saw the change of the political climate in part, I think, to our concerns over work. It was also a wonderful topic journalistically because it's so rich. There's so many avenues one can take and so many, whether they're historical or basic reporting avenues, there are many, many ways to go on this. And so it really took me a lot of places. And I, you know, as I mentioned, I spoke with scores of people. And so it was quite a wonderful experience. Did you anticipate it was going to be eight years? Oh, I did not. I did not anticipate that. When I signed the contract, I obviously agreed to do it much more quickly than that. But due to, you know, the changes that transpired from when I started it until I finished it, you know, when I say I, I didn't sign the contract eight years ago, I signed the contract six years ago, but I spent two years thinking about the book and writing the proposal, changing the proposal. Again, unlikely I would have taken it on to begin with if I'd known what a long path it would be. However, now that it's completed, I'm very gratified that I did it. Well, I read it cover to cover in about, I don't know, two days, Friday and Saturday. And, you know, I was really, really struck and wanted to ask you, how long did you put into this? Because you really, really did your homework here. And so that comes through in the book. I will absolutely say that. And so because it's so remarkably comprehensive, I'm hoping to cover a lot of ground in our discussion. And so what I want to do is I want to begin with job automation and what jobs you see being impacted. This completely shocked me, to be honest with you, in reading this. There's already the first fully automated bank in existence. And you note that surgeons and attorneys are already feeling threatened by new technology. So tell us what you learned. Yeah, there's very, very few areas in which digital technology has not at least dipped a toe, right? And has not at least had some impact. And in fact, what's really interesting is I think a lot of us assume that just the lower level, lower skill jobs are at the highest risk of being automated. And in the industrial age, that was certainly true. You know, the easiest things to automate were the most routine jobs and the lower skill jobs. So when we would automate these jobs, it actually would free workers up to be in more productive positions. And being in those more productive positions allowed them to earn a higher wage and it actually benefited the worker. And for a long time, you know, economists thought this would happen in the digital age. And what I mean is until really relatively recently, just in the last four or five years. When I began the book, economists still insisted that new jobs would be created and that there would be better jobs and more people would be able to acquire these better jobs because automation would free them from their routine jobs. And so they would be more productive and earn more. Turns out that wasn't the case. The digital age is different from the industrial age. There's nothing like it really in history. And what's happened is we've been able to automate 
to some degree, I don't want to exaggerate, human thought. You know, now you have to be careful with that because people who are experts in artificial intelligence will say that's a gross simplification, and it is. But there are many things now that we can do with digital technology that we certainly didn't anticipate we'd be able to do. So it's extremely unwise, I think, to predict that a job or a piece of work, a task, is too sophisticated for a machine to tackle. Okay? I think we've thought that in the past, but I think we're seeing more and more tasks that can be digitalized. And so we have to be aware of that. We can't just assume that we can acquire skills quickly and apply those skills and beat the machine consistently. The machines are moving very, very quickly. And so we have to rethink the kinds of work that we want to do and hold on to as humans, but allow the more efficient machines to take on the tasks that they're, in fact, better at. As I was reading the book and all the different examples that you have of how technology is about to disrupt so many different careers and so many different businesses, it just struck me that it's human beings that are making the decisions as leaders to accelerate this in many cases. And I, I'm, bear with me on this question because it's a little bit long because I want to read a quote from your book. But there's a company in New Hampshire that you call out and they happen to be, as you noted, the creator of the chicken pot pie. And since the 1950s, they've had 85 employees plus or minus making them. But now the owner says that he plans to automate his shop and eliminate 70% of the people that have been working there all these years. So I was really struck by how he explains his decision. And I want, again, I want to read the quote from your book. Here's what he says, quote, if you've ever had to deal with people on the production floor, you know why. Machines don't have attitudes. They don't have ups and downs. They don't have issues. And a massive pie-making machine can pay for itself in two years. With consumers demanding a low price and stockholders pressing you for a higher ROI, there really is no choice but to bring in the machines." End quote. So my question to you, Ellen, is this comprehensively the way business leaders all over the world are thinking about automation? It's like, let's just get rid of the people. Look what we're going to be able to do. These machines are going to be paid back in a couple of years and we're going to have so much productivity and I don't have to have these messy people around anymore. Is, is that what's happening? Well, I wouldn't make a sweeping, as you can tell. <laughs> I try to avoid sweeping generalizations. But in this particular case, the owner of this company, Mrs. Bud's Pie, which was a New Hampshire company, as you mentioned, a very old one. He was quite sophisticated, had actually attended MIT at one point in his life, and was quite distraught. When he told me that story, he was not gloating. In fact, I think I described it as him looking into his coffee cup, because I remember that conversation we had at a small cafe. And he was telling me this, and he was quite unhappy about it, because Mrs. Bud's Pies is one of these homey, products. If you look at their website, you see, you know, happy workers pulling out these bubbling chicken pot pies. It's a beloved company. It's kind of embedded in a community. And so he was, as I said, distraught at this. But because the price of his pie, he felt he could not get it up above $5 per pie, which to me seemed extremely low, especially since one of these pies, I think, feeds four people. But he said, that's the market. That's what I have to do. 
I really have no choice but to automate. And he'd been holding out and he'd been hoping not to. But at this point, he was at a turning point and he really couldn't avoid it. So I do think a lot of leaders, business leaders, are faced with this decision and they have to make the right one, not only for themselves, but for their shareholders and for the success of their company. And I would never tell a business leader, don't automate for the sake of your workers. I would never say that. I think we have to think comprehensively. I think obviously workers would require, we should be given adequate notice. They should be brought in on the decision making on this. And they should be considered in this decision. But clearly, if it's more efficient and more productive to automate, then that should be the case. Again, we can't outrun the machines. We have to think more holistically about work and the kind of work we want to hang on to as humans, the kind of work we highly value, the kind of work we really need to get done, and reward that kind of work appropriately. Okay, we're certainly not going to automate, for example, the fastest growing job category in the United States, which is home health care worker. I've talked to people about this. I've talked to technologists about this. And this is a career that really resists automation. And yet it is a very rapidly growing job category, the fastest growing job category in the United States. So maybe we should think about elevating that work option, rewarding it appropriately and making it what I call in the book, you know, a good job because it's one we're going to need. It's one that requires humans. It's that kind of work we may want to rethink as the machines take the kind of work we once had. Well, the reason that I picked this example is because he's making $5 pies and yet he feels compelled by external pressures, shareholders especially, apparently, that he needs to automate in order to not just make a living, but probably survive. So if he is somebody, and I don't know how long he goes back into that business, if it's his family or if he bought it, but nevertheless, he's worked there long enough to know that this is a company that has always employed people. And now they're making a business decision to eliminate all but 30% of the people. And I appreciate your pinning down that is not a sweeping generalization, but is it a glimpse into the decision and thought process that many businesses much bigger than this guy's are going to be making over the next decades and so, or, you know, and how soon are they making? Absolutely. There's no question about it. I mean, clearly places like very large companies like Amazon are buying robotics companies, right? And why are they buying those companies? They want to automate their warehouses. So in the book, I describe, for example, the creation of the robot arm, which was a big, uh, how to put a bottleneck in the robotic world, how to automate an arm and with a hand that was sensitive enough to say, pick up an object carefully, not break it and place it somewhere. This was actually a very difficult technical problem when they were able to solve that problem. And it's only in recent years that they were able to solve that problem. Now they can automate all sorts of functions that until recently required humans, right? So I absolutely think, and I, I know that companies around the world are looking to automate not just those manual activities, but also a lot of thought processes. Again, you know, it depends on the outfit, the industrial segment, but clearly this is the way of the future. There's really no way about it around it. We can't turn the clock back 
on this, and I don't advocate that we try to do that. One of the estimates, I don't know that was your estimate, but an estimate that was in your book said that it's about a third of all jobs that are going to be eliminated. So what's the timing of that? And give us a glimpse of what kinds of jobs you see being eliminated, kind of going back a little bit in the discussion. What are some of the jobs that most people wouldn't expect might have a significant impact from this? Well, you know, let's just take a simple example that's probably not even in the book. I mean, think of travel agents. When was the last time you used a travel agent, mm-hmm. right? So that's a job that I always thought, you know, years ago, you know, my travel agent was a very valuable person, you know, in my life. When I went somewhere, they helped me make decisions. They helped direct me to the places that were going to work the best. They often helped me find the best airfares, good deals on hotels, you know, all that stuff. Now, of course, that's all available on the web. And it's a job that is a service job that you would think would requires the human touch. And certainly travel agents still exist but in a vanishingly small number compared to what they were. Another one, of course, in my field, journalism, right? So there are many, many fewer journalists than there were 10 years ago, certainly at newspapers. There are people working on websites and there are people working for institutions in information capacities, but the number of journalists has declined dramatically. Again, I don't think I would have anticipated that thanks to digital technology, that came out of the blue. It's very, very different than thinking of a factory worker being automated in which we can imagine a robot, for example, spray painting an automobile. It's a little harder for us to imagine how the job of a journalist or a travel agent or a radiologist, for example, Mm -hmm. could be automated in part or wholly automated. Document research in law companies, that's something that has reduced the call for lawyers. It's not that high-skilled legal practices are not manned by humans. They are. Of course they are. But because you've reduced the call for that particular function, document search, thanks to automation or being able to use employees in other countries, that also is facilitated by automation, you've reduced the need for lawyers overall, right? So you've cut into, you haven't eliminated that job category but you reduce the call for that job category. Let's transition. So we've set up the gloom here. And I, I sensed in finishing your book that you're an optimist about, you know, we can solve this, but I think there's got to be some big pivots in terms of how we're thinking about it, taking it seriously and approaching it both from a personal point of view, meaning what am I going to do to ensure I have a career and a successful one, one that makes me happy and thriving And then what can I do as a manager of other people to help them? So that's the big question for you. What's the proposal? What's the recommendation in terms of how we anticipate what's coming? Well, there's probably three questions there. One is, how do we as individuals or as parents help ourselves or our children prepare for work in the 21st century? Another is, how do managers now help their workforce deal with these changes. And I think the third one was what can we do as a society? Or individually too. Individually. Okay. Mm -hmm. So let's begin with the managers because that's something that you brought up first. And what I would recommend right now is, first of all, I would never tell someone how to run their business, but I would recommend that managers get out of the habit of micromanaging employees. Okay. Not to say that many do, 
But what the evidence shows is the social scientists I spoke with, for example, at Yale School of Management, who've done quite a bit of work on this, is that if you allow your employees to craft their jobs to some degree, they will not only be more efficient, better workers, but that you'll retain them at a higher rate. And by that, I mean not that they can do anything they want, but if you allow them to focus at least a little bit on what really interests them and what brings them meaning, they will become more efficient and they're more easily retained. Now, the example that was used in the book was was, um, a blue-collar situation. So it was people who were working as janitors in a hospital, for example. And these people who were working in janitors in a hospital, the management scientists were looking at what makes these people effective, what makes these people efficient, and what makes them happy in the sense that they were going to stick with their job. And what they found was that hospital janitors who were allowed to interact with patients and to the degree, for example, to look out for them in the sense that if they were lonely, maybe sit with them for a minute or two to hear their stories or maybe to notify a nurse if they weren't feeling well, the hospital janitors who were able to do that did a better job, were more efficient, was better for the bottom line. When these hospital janitors were told they couldn't do that anymore, their productivity decreased. They became much more dissatisfied with their job and, you know, quite unhappy. Took the life and meaning out of it. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. They, They identified themselves as cleaners first, of course, but also as healers right? They weren't self-glorifying. It was part of what they did each day when they went in. Mm -hmm. So Amy Rosniewski, who is the management scholar who's done this work, uh, talks about crafting jobs. And of course, it's not just in that environment, it's many environments. So you allow the employee to take the part of their job, which they feel they can master, or they can feel some control over and allow them to expand that, you know, within the limits of what works for your company Doing that, trusting them, seems to have a very, very positive effect over the long run. It may seem inefficient over the short run, but over the long run, it seems to have a very positive effect. So that's one thing that managers can do now to help their workforce become, you know, what Maslow calls self-actualized on the job, you know, to allow them to have some level of control over their working day. I want to get back to answering the third component of this, which is what can I do individually to, I'm speaking on behalf of my audience, I know that automation is going to start to eliminate jobs and it's going to have an impact on the businesses that I'm managing and it's also going to have an impact on me. So what is your advice in terms of preparing for that? How can I educate myself? What should I be educating myself on? How do I grow and develop myself to create sort of a antidote to all the ambiguity that might be coming? That's a question I get asked <laughs> probably the most. How do I prepare myself or my children for this changing work landscape? And from my research, you know, what I found was diversify. Think of it as a portfolio. You know, you don't invest all your money in one stock or you know, most of us don't if we want to succeed. We diversify. And that's what I recommend in the book. And that's what I recommend to people in real life. I think, first of all, training in specific skills can be a short-term sort of stopgap measure. So your listeners who work in IT, for example, might learn a new computer language or they might learn a new skill. But, you know, over the long term, one of my friends calls this 
chasing the bus as it you're just behind that bus mm. and it keeps going right and you're trying to get on that bus and it but it gets ahead of you the problem with it is these skills change very quickly and so what one would hope is on the job you can learn these skills on the job before you lose your job you know you keep current on the job it's not something that I advocate that people learn on their own, on their own nickel, to constantly retrain for the needs of industry. And that's one of my arguments. I don't think we should be in the business publicly to be training people up for just-in-time jobs. I think that's not a good idea. What you can do, as I said, is diversify, be as nimble as possible, obviously keep your general knowledge up read, attend lectures, keep your eye and ear open, keep your network system going, and be as flexible as you possibly can and invest in your work as opposed to your job. And in the, you know, the book, that's one of the central themes of the book, is work versus job. The whole concept of job is a relatively new one. It didn't used to be something that people thought highly of. Having a job in the 19th century was kind of Declasse, you know, it wasn't very cool to have a job. You wanted to own land or you wanted to be, you know, you want to either be a squire of land or a farmer of your own land. Being a farm hand or being an employee was not really highly thought of, okay? So this whole notion of job, you know, and the glorification of having a job is a relatively new thing. Whereas, of course, work is eternal. You know, we've always had our work. So moving into the 21st century, I think we need to think of ourselves as workers rather than jobbers. And actually, jobbers is, is actually a word mm-hmm. that I learned in the course mm-hmm. of doing this book. And being a jobber is kind of a pejorative. You know, it's not necessarily a good thing. So you have your work, and your work is part of who you are. You retain that flexibility and that nimbleness, and you prepare yourself for things you can't anticipate. You really can't know for sure what's coming down the pike. But what you can know is that you have that security in yourself to change and be your best self in a variety of different forms. I know that sounds very kind of touchy-feely, but it's not, you know. And and I can give you an example, if you wanted to, of how this this can work. Okay, so there's a study in the book that I thought was just fascinating. And it's done by a management scholar at Oxford, and a very, very interesting study, Oxford University in England. She did this study in the United States, and what she looked at, she, had, she got a large group of musicians and dancers, very, very high-level professionals. So people who dance, for example, in the New York City Ballet, I mean, you know, very accomplished artists. And what all these artists had in common is that they'd all had a serious injury, okay? So they could no longer dance at the level that they once danced. They could no longer play their instruments at the level that they once played their instruments. And what she found was there were two different responses to this. One group identified very strongly with their job. So for example, if they were at the Cleveland Symphony or if they were with the New York City Ballet, they identified themselves as a dancer in the New York City Ballet or a a trombonist in the Cleveland Symphony. And that, by losing that identification because of their injury, they lost everything and they became despondent, depressed. They felt, in some cases, life wasn't worth living. But then there was this other group who actually owned their work. Yes, they could no longer perform you know, at the top levels of the ballet or the symphony, 
but they still were musicians and dancers. And so they did other things, like some began teaching dance or became teachers of music, or they started writing about the dance or music, or they became connoisseurs if they were old enough to to retire and they could afford to retire. They became connoisseurs of music and dance. So they did not become despondent. They thrived after that. I mean, obviously there was an adjustment period, but they did very, very well. So we can expand that, you know, to all of us and think about what are the components of our job that really are our work, the kinds of things we would do almost whether we were paid or not to do them. And how can we develop those things to the point where someone maybe would be willing to to pay us for pursuing those activities? Another example I use in a book is a guy who got laid off of his job at what he called a fancy job in industry. He was well-educated and, for example, he spoke Chinese. He, you know, thought he had kind of a prestigious job. And when he couldn't find a new job, he took something that he thought was a real step down, and that was he got certified as a real estate agent. And what he found was selling real estate was the best job he'd ever had. He loved it because he loved talking to people. He loved the psychological components. He got interested in architecture. He was very interested in history, so he got sort of intrigued by historical buildings. He made, you know, a decent living at it and was good enough at it that it checked off all the boxes that he needed to gain meaning and a sense of purpose in his life. It was very different from what he had done before. I absolutely love the example that you just gave, and I'm so glad that you cited it with respect to the musicians. And why that resonated so strongly for me is because I happened to, in my career, work for two financial institutions that ended up failing. And they ended up being acquired and assimilated into another culture. And some people just couldn't make that transition. Some people lost their jobs because the acquiring company ended up having people already doing that. But either way, I had the direct experience of seeing that people who could see themselves more broadly and to recognize that they had skills that were more transferable than just doing a job, as you described, went on to thrive in their careers and, you know, left that memory behind them. But I have some people that I know very well who were completely overwhelmed by the loss, couldn't see another future for themselves, and, you know, sort of shut themselves down for the, you know, big part of their lives. So, This is very helpful, I think, in the context of if technology is about to rapidly change how we all work, it's your mindset that's going to have a big impact on whether or not you manage through it successfully. Is that what you're saying? Oh, that's absolutely it. One of the early chapters, I focus on a a gentleman who was a marketing expert. He'd done everything right. You know, Ivy League schools, Ivy League business degree, very successful career. And then at the age of 56 or 7, he was out of a job and he could not find another one. And there was nothing that I, you know, we spent time together. This guy was an A-level individual. (laughs) He did everything right. He'd done everything right. Good father, good citizen, volunteer, you know, the whole thing. Uh, Very good, very technology savvy, very up to date. And for whatever reason, the jobs that he had trained for and he had, he'd done all his life, you know, were not available to him anymore. And this, the sad thing about spending time with him was that he kept beating himself up about this. He kept saying, I've got to change. I've got to get better. I've got to do something different. And he and, and his wife would sit down at night and list ways he could be 
quote, better than he was. This was really heartbreaking to me. I countered this with another example of someone who did things very differently, more like you're describing. And I'm saying that, you know, it's not the individual's fault, nor should they be expected to contort themselves and turn themselves into something that they're not just to become something that is called employable or desirable to employers. I think that is a a nightmare and it's led to tremendous unhappiness with work in the United States, just tremendous. And I contrast this with, for example, the Israeli experience where, as I mentioned, another social scientist, I hate to keep bringing these folks up, but he was at MIT at the time and he had done work in Israel where people do not beat themselves up if they don't get the job. They understand that it's not them, it's the economy, it's things that are not necessarily in their control, that they're not entirely in control of this process. And so they need to continue to feel good about themselves and feel positive and and find something where the fit is right. You know, the fit might not be right anymore in this industry, but the fit will be right in a different industry. So you need to let go of your preconceived ideas and focus on what makes me happy, what am I good at, what can I master that I want to master rather than trying to master things that are very difficult for me because I'm hoping it's going to get me into that niche, right? That's, that I think is a futile endeavor. The whole motivation to go to an Ivy League school or schools and excel and be a stand-up person and do all of the different things that you described about him sounds descriptive of someone who believes if I work hard, if I study hard, I can control the outcomes for my life. And that's just not the way it works. And it's not the way it's going to work in the future, right? I mean, there really has to be much greater versatility. And as your example of the Israelis, it's sort of like, hey, if this doesn't work, something will work. It's not about me personally. Exactly. Exactly. And I think it's a a cultural difference, this idea that it's up to us as individuals to sell in the way that is sellable at all times. That is very disheartening. And certainly the responses I've gotten from millennials and young people, I mentioned in the book that I wrote this little essay for the Atlantic magazine. And, you know, the responses I got from young people to this essay about work and its meaning were really heartbreaking because like this gentleman I was mentioning, these young workers had done everything right. They had gone to good schools. They went to graduate school in many cases. They had what their parents would have called good jobs, but they were distraught. They were distraught because they didn't understand why the work was not more meaningful to them. Some of them were thinking of quitting. You know, they were putting in these very long hours. And one of the most tragic things I thought was that some of these young people felt that because they didn't feel passionate about their work, they should work harder at their work. And then the passion would come, you know? So they were missing out on everything else in their life because they were, in some cases, putting in 100-hour weeks at the job, hoping that was going to generate meaning for them. It was sad. And so we can all imagine where this idea comes from. But rather than, you know, when I have some ideas on that, but I think it's just a good idea to keep that in mind, whether you're a young person yourself or you have young people in your life, you know, that's a merry-go-round nobody should be on. Well, I am going to ask you to go into it because it's it doesn't really make sense that I'm going to work 100 hours and somehow it's going to transition me into having deeper sense of passion and heart in my work, right? So what is driving that? And I mean, one of the things that you cite in the book is that 
30 to 40 percent of people, I think that you said the New York Federal Reserve said that 30 to 40 percent of millennials are working in jobs that don't require a degree, even though they have one. So is that the reason that people are working in jobs that are just numbing them relative to what they're capable of doing? Or is there something in part of their psychology that we need to talk about? Well, that's very true. So underemployment in the United States is rampant, especially with millennials. I think what's interesting is that millennials are on average better educated than their parents, and yet are not making the kinds of salaries or having the kinds of jobs their parents had at their age. So even though they're more educated and they're more skilled, at least in theory, they have more formal skills, they're not doing as well on average than their parents. Now we have to be careful. Many of us, you know, we know exceptions to this. Maybe some of our own children are exceptions to this or friends are exceptions to this, but we're talking averages here. So across the United States, this is a problem. So again, a lot of these young people have worked very, very hard And they've been told ever since they were little kids that they work hard, they'll get what they need to get. You know, there's this idea that millennials are snowflakes and are spoiled. Well, I'm a college professor and I can tell you the anxiety levels in young people today are much greater than when I started teaching. I mean, it's really kind of off the charts, the anxiety due to the high cost of going to college and the concern over underemployment. It's not that students feel they won't get a job. They will get a job. But what their concern is, will they get a job for which they've been educated? And in many cases, that is not the case. They do not. So they've been taught from an early age, well, if you work hard, you'll get the payoff. Now, you can think about this in terms of sports. You train hard and you succeed. You run those miles and you'll win that marathon. We don't talk probably enough about overtraining. You get diminishing returns. Mm -hmm. And so these millennials think, well, look, obviously, if I win the race, I'm going to feel good about myself and it'll increase my passion for the sport. So all I need to do is to put in more hours, train harder, and then I will feel passionate. Well, they've transferred this to the work environment. This is a subset. This is not everybody. You know, many of us know people who don't do this at all. But this is a subset of people, probably some of these people who hope to be future leaders, the kinds of folks in your audience, right, who are now leaders. So they just assume, well, look, I should just work harder. I'll put in more hours and then I'll feel more fulfilled. Well, you know, they're overtraining. You know, that's the problem. And when you when you overtrain, you can break down. And in the book, I use as an example of this young investment bankers at Goldman Sachs. Study of investment bankers over two years at Goldman Sachs, 28-year-olds, how many of them literally broke down, got very sick, became addicted to various things. It was just not a good situation. And these were the people who were working 100 hours a week. They were really trying to get ahead of the game by putting in those long hours And it backfired. So that's an extreme case. Obviously, most people don't work for Goldman Sachs. Investment bankers don't necessarily get our sympathy. You know, we know why oftentimes people go into investment banking. But still, it's kind of a proof of concept of what is happening to a lot of young people and not just young people, older people as well. I also use examples in the tech industry where this was happening. I said I wanted to cover a lot of ground, and you're really transitioning into something that I really want to make sure we cover, which is how we're managing people today. 
So one of the things that you cite is something every single person listening in is already familiar with, which is job satisfaction is at record lows. More than half of Americans hate their jobs. We've got engagement that really hasn't moved substantially. It's moved a little bit over the last three or four years, but nothing of any great magnitude. So the first question I have to set up really what the next question is, is do you believe these stats are true? Well, I think we have to question what we mean by satisfied with their jobs. I think that what has been shown, I think, is that people who become disengaged with their jobs. So some people will claim that they're satisfied with their jobs, but they're not really engaged with their jobs. And I think this disengagement comes from a few different places. One is it's very difficult for many of us to get away from our jobs, right? We, thanks to, you know, our cell phones and internet access and, you know, constant emailing and texting, we never really get relief. We never can get away from it. And that makes it very difficult to feel a sense of personal satisfaction. We feel like we're constantly under surveillance and being watched. And by the way, I do a section on surveillance, and that is a very counterproductive thing to do for many, many occupations. I understand that some people need to be surveilled. Some occupations require that. But people being surveilled are typically not satisfied or unhappy on the job. And increasing numbers of us are being surveilled on the job and measured. So it's difficult to feel satisfaction when you're constantly being measured, when you're constantly being watched and evaluated. These are things that are very counterproductive in terms of increasing employee satisfaction. So I would suggest people minimize those activities. Sometimes you can't eliminate those activities but I would minimize them and do them very mindfully and carefully rather than do them in a sweeping way. So that's one reason that some people are less satisfied with their jobs than they might be. Another thing that I found out that kind of surprised me was work that was actually done in Finland. And I went to Finland because Finland was doing a national initiative and understanding work. It's a funny thing, but Finland's a small country and they were doing it nationally because they sensed this dissatisfaction with work. And one of the things they found was the number of meetings that people were required to attend was really eroding their satisfaction. And the reason for that was because they couldn't get anything done. I think we've all had that experience. We are getting constant emails, texts, being pulled away to meetings, always trying to get consensus, this kind of fetish for teamwork, not giving people private time to think things through or feel a sense of accomplishment. All those things have contributed to dissatisfaction at work. So those are two you know, or three you know, really concrete things. I do think uh, satisfaction also is a consequence of elevated expectations. What people think, like those young people who wrote me in response to the Atlantic essay, an awful lot of people are told to think that your job is going to be so central to your life and that every day should be a revelation. I mean, I'm exaggerating, but I think there's that idea that your work should be so fulfilling. And so the disappointment is that you've been set up for that disappointment. And rather than going in and saying, well, my job is a means to an end. I have other things in my life. Some I'll have good days and I'll have bad days. And my job's pretty good. You know, basically job satisfaction was higher when people were working in factories. And looking back at it now, we think, gosh, that doesn't seem very satisfying. Well, their expectations were very different. So they would enjoy the day if maybe they had a good day 
putting bumpers on cars and having lunch with our colleagues. That was a good day. Now our expectations are very different. And so we're setting ourselves up for disappointment. So I'd say those are three or four contributing factors to dissatisfaction. How do you suggest as managers we tamp that down? Well, okay, this will lead to maybe some things we could talk about later, but the idea that managers in some cases expect employees to act passionately about their work, to be always enthusiastic, to always be upbeat, to always be ready to volunteer for teams. I think this is very unrealistic and I think it's discouraging. And it also discourages workers from being honest about what's really going on. So I think managers have to almost commiserate with their employees and say, you know what? Yeah, this really sucks. You know, we have to fill these forms out. It's really boring. We're going to have to work late into the night to get this report out. I'm really sorry. This is really not great. And you must be very unhappy about this. Not like, not say, gee, this is going to be great. This is going to be wonderful. This is going to make us all happy people. It's not going to make us happy people, Mm -hmm. right? Spin. Yeah, spin. So stop the spin. (laughs) Be honest with your employees. Yeah. I think that's great advice. Yeah. And I've I've seen enough examples of this to know that you're spot on. So thank you. I'm glad I asked the question. <laughs> I want to transition us, Alan, take a quick break from the conversation and move into something we call the heartbeat round. Sure. With your permission, I'm going to ask you about a dozen or so rapid fire questions. And the purpose is just to get to know you a little bit better, a little bit about your philosophy and you know what are the drivers and influences in your life. And so I'll ask you a question. You answer it in a heartbeat. Are you game? Whoa. Uh, well, ho- hopefully my heart beats slowly. So sure. <laughs> All right. We'll be sure to make sure that happens. All right. Number one, newspaper anywhere in the world with the highest journalistic integrity. Oh, gosh. Um, well, I like the British papers, the Financial Times and the Guardian. I love them both. College degree you'd pursue if you were entering school today. Uh, well, I'd probably double major in philosophy and mathematics. One tip on how we can all be better communicators. Look people in the eye and use active, precise verbs. Quality you most admire in other people. Compassion. A company you think we'd all be wise to study and emulate. You're going to be surprised by this one. A little Tulsa, Oklahoma company called Quick Trip. It's in your book, so ring the plug bell for your book. Got it. I read it. got it. (laughs) One book that changed your life. A book that was written in the 70s, believe it or not, I read it as a teenager, called Welfare Mother by the journalist Susan Sheehan. Besides love, what does the world need more of? Empathy. The leader, male or female, from any time in history you'd most like to interview, since you're a journalist. Oh, boy. Franklin Roosevelt, because uh, not only was he able to put forward the New Deal programs that, you know, sort of redefined the role of federal government in our lives, but he helped us leave isolationism and gain victory in World War II. Skill improvement you're working on right now. (laughs) My backhand. (laughs) (laughs) Tennis player. (laughs) One piece of wisdom you repeatedly impart to your students. Oh, this is one I always use. Thomas Edison said, I have not failed. I've just found 10,000 ways that won't work. One of your favorite things about living in Boston? I actually live in Somerville, which is the Brooklyn of Boston. And I love everything about being able to walk around very diverse and very interesting Somerville. Well, as a Yankee fan, I have to 
congratulate the Boston Red Sox for the World Series, most as it pains me. <laughs> and, and let me tell you, I know <laughs> it does. <laughs> <laughs> One person who belongs in the Journalism Hall of Fame. Catherine Boo of the New Yorker. And the one idea you most want us to remember from your book, The Job? Ah, that no employer can gift us with meaning. It's a very much a do-it-yourself proposition, making meaning of one's work. Fantastic. Thank you for going through the heartbeat round with me, Ellen. One of the things that you mentioned in the book is that two-thirds of Americans are now feeling overwhelmed by workplace stress. And that came from the World Health Organization. You mentioned it earlier about sort of the younger generation, but then you actually said, no, it's pretty much everyone that is feeling anxious. And we have an audience all over the world, but specifically in America, you said it's like one of the most anxious nations in the world. Any insights on how we might lessen that? Maybe when you talked about meetings, should we be ending them at a certain period of time, like no meetings after three o'clock? And what about having periods of time where there's no emails? What are some of the ways that you might have learned that we could reduce the stress? Well, I think the two you mentioned are excellent. I mean, I do think that people need to be let off the tether. They need to be able to get away from their machines from time to time, the text, the emails, the constant being on call. I agree with that. I also agree with what you said about meetings. Keeping meetings with very well-defined goals and agendas and keeping them short, giving people the opportunity to be on their own. You know, this whole idea of the open office was an idea that really benefited employers. And people say, well, it makes teamwork easier. Yes, but it's actually, you know, from my research, it's actually not tremendously great for creativity or innovation. A lot of employees feel that they can't get enough done, that they're constantly bombarded with more information, more sound, more noise. So they need to be able to have some time for quiet contemplation. You know, that's important. We, you know, we often think of what people are looking for in work as challenge and advancement. Many, many people are not necessarily prioritizing those things. Mm -hmm. What everyone seems to want in work is stability, okay? A certain level of predictability. What you mentioned before, you know, they're going to have a job the next day that they can count on their manager not leaving, you know, in a week um, every other month. The stability is something I think corporations really ought to be rethinking and small businesses. How can I keep things on an even keel? How can I make my workers feel secure? What can I do to help that out, help make that happen? Giving workers reasonable schedules that are predictable so that they can program in other things in their lives in a reasonable way, allowing their job to be part of a larger picture. In the book, I talk about a company in Finland that requires their workers to leave at five o'clock. And they require them to do that for, for all the reasons we're talking about, because they know they need something outside of the job to keep them going and keep them stable, their families, their hobbies, their other interests. So all that, and not packing everything into the workplace. So whether it's espresso machines or ping pong tables or couches where people can sleep, all these things I think are very, very counterproductive. Your workplace is not your, <laughs> it's not your home and it shouldn't be your home. You should have a refuge that's away from the office or the workplace. You know, providing these perks such as dry cleaning and back massages at the office, I think that's very, very counterproductive and it leads, it can lead to these issues with anxiety and depression that we spoke about earlier. 
Well, I'm really glad I asked that question. And as we wind things down here, I have a tradition of turning it over to our guest and just sort of asking in the context of your very comprehensive book and everything we've just talked about, is there anything that you want our audience to ponder more deeply as we close things out? Is there anything we haven't discussed that you especially want to call out about the future of work and about how leaders might approach what's coming? Yeah, one of my big bugaboos, thank you for this opportunity. One of my big issues is the whole notion that the United States does not have a workforce that is capable of doing the work the United States needs to get done. This idea that we have a skills gap or Americans are not good enough to do American jobs or good enough to do 21st century jobs. There are enough skills in this country probably twice over to do any job worth doing in the United States. I think we need to have faith in our workforce. Certainly, some jobs will be outsourced for financial reasons. Some jobs will be automated for other reasons. Progress is inexorable. I don't argue against progress. But let's be honest about our workforce and what they're capable of. We know this from World War II when we trained up people who had never worked before as you know, in jobs, say, in radio operation or electronics. We've trained these people very quickly to do these things, including mothers who had never worked outside the house. So we know that we have a very capable workforce that can handle these jobs. So let's forget, lose that idea, the skills gap, and let's focus on the talent that we have and how can we maximize the benefit of that talent and maximize their potential as individuals and think also about the work that needs to be done and think about how we can get that work done and how we can elevate the job to make sure, as I mentioned before, things like personal health care worker, how can we make those good jobs rather than having cliched ideas about what constitutes a good job, right? Let's think about the jobs that need to get done and make those good jobs. That's my message. Wonderful. Thank you so very much, Ellen. This has been a very unique topic and conversation in relationship to really all of our previous podcasts, although there's an underlying theme here. So I do want to thank you very much for helping to shake things up and leave us thinking about this future of work. And on behalf of our audience, I just want to sincerely thank you for joining me and we wish you really great success with your brand new book. Well, thank you. And thanks for giving the job a little time on your podcast. I really appreciate it. You take care. Thanks, Ellen. You too. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. As we quickly close out the podcast, I want to thank you as always for listening in and introducing us to your friends. My gratitude goes to my webmaster, Randy Yaunt, and sound engineer and producer, Eric Oz. And I leave you with my constant reminder that when you lead from the heart, your people will follow. This is Mark C. Crowley signing off for now. Thank you.